0: Well, this morning, we continue in our our survey of the Old Testament, seeing that the gospel is everywhere, uh, that the gospel is not a new concept in the New Testament, uh, but is something central, rooted in the very character of God since the beginning. And this is our second and final week in the book of Exodus. Now, there are a lot of important books out there. Uh, Many of you have books on your shelves that you reference from time to time. Uh, They hold particular uh, chapters that you need to go to, relevant for particular situations. And so you open the books, you you scan the table of contents to find what you need. For example, Thanksgiving weekend comes along, you grab a cookbook, you scan the table of contents, preparation of a turkey dinner. Maybe it's a a computer book, uh, the installation of software. Uh, Maybe it's a driving book, the parallel parking of a car. Yeah, which some of you need to read. (laughs) A medical book, removal of a kidney, a dental book, removal of a tooth, a dating book, the removal of a heart, and the list goes on and on. Well, here we are in Exodus, an extremely important book. Because it is a book about being the nation of Israel. It's a book about being God's people. And since we're jumping from chapters 2 and 3 last week uh, to chapter 32 today, uh, let's set the scene by just quickly scanning the table of contents. Now first, it's important to note that the chapter 32 of Exodus is a kind of meanwhile back at the ranch type of chapter, And what I mean by that is because we don't pick up where chapter 31 left off. No, chapter 32 actually picks up where chapter 24 left off. Because you see, back in chapter 24, we we saw the confirmation of the covenant. God's covenant with his people. Uh, In many ways, the wedding day of Israel with her God. And then we, we left that chapter with the people of Israel at the foot of the mountain. But with Moses going to the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights, Moses to be with God. Now they had already been given the Ten Commandments back in chapter 20, but they had not yet been written in stone. And that is what is happening in part at the top of the mountain. Chapter 24 ends and we hit chapters 25 through 31, seven chapters focusing on God's very detailed, very elaborate instructions to Moses regarding the tabernacle, the priestly garments, the priesthood itself. And again, all of this is taking place at the top of the mountain. So the question is, when we get to chapter 32, is what have the Israelites been doing during all this time? These 40 days, these 40 nights, what what have they been up to at the base of the mountain? Now, remember, God has just delivered Israel from a life of slavery, just freed her, and not only rescued her, but God has also declared himself exclusively her God, in fact, referring to himself as Israel's husband. God has promised to to love them, to provide for them, to be with them, to be their God. And the people have committed to God. Three times they say very clearly, We will do all that you say. They have committed to love God through exclusive worship, faithful obedience. But then we read chapter 32, and we see the people's disloyalty in the face of God's deliverance. And so that brings us to our text this morning Exodus chapter 32. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's found on page 72. But let's take a moment to pray before we hear God's word. We look to you this morning, the God of deliverance. We thank you for your grace to us. And we pray that in that grace, you would once again Open our hearts to the beauties of the gospel, the glories of the gospel of Christ. That you would open us to your word, that you would open your word to us. And in doing so, that you would change us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you can see, this is a a rather long passage And so what I'm going to do is actually read select verses from that, and so that you don't get lost as I skip around a few times. I first invite you to listen, to just hear. It'll take a a few minutes to read through, but just listen, because it's a story. And the hope is is that you can enter into this story. And then throughout the sermon, I'll, I'll refer you back to specific parts in this passage. But for now, I invite you to hear the Word of God from Exodus 32. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Then they sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then, back at the top of the mountain, the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, Lord. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. So Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Now, when Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf that they had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Aaron answered, Do not be angry with me, my lord. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughing stock to their enemies. So Moses stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then Moses said to the Levites, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and that day about 3,000 of the Israelites died. Then Moses said to the Levites, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you are against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but I, I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back up to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, Lord, please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they had done with the calf that Aaron had made. And this is the Word of God. So a weighty passage for sure. And I warn you that this is thus a weighty sermon uh, where we will be dealing with both the weight of sin but also the weight of God's amazing grace. And so today we're going to consider three things. Israel's infidelity... God's holiness and God's grace. So infidelity, holiness, and grace. And we'll start with infidelity. If you're taking notes, this is verses 1 to 6, 21 to 25. Now again, God and Israel, they have had their wedding day. The covenant has been sealed, has been confirmed back in chapter 24. And then here, chapter 32 Meanwhile, back at the ranch, the Israelites have broken covenant. They have become covenant breakers. In other words, disloyalty, infidelity. Verses 1 to 6, we see some of the people demand Aaron, make us gods who will lead us. And so Aaron collects gold from them. He makes an idol in the form of a calf. The people declare that this idol represents their gods, plural. Who rescued them. Aaron then leads the people in worship of the golden calf. And the people celebrate. There's no doubt about it. These people have forsaken the one true God. The God who rescued them. Their husband. And think about this for a moment. They created a golden calf. Where did they get the gold for this idol? Because these were slave people. They owned nothing. Where did they get gold? Well, if we were to turn back in Exodus 12, which is the eve of Israel's deliverance from Egypt, we would see that God had given the Israelites favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. So that just as they were about to leave, whatever they asked for, the Egyptians would give them. And they asked for gold and silver jewelry and clothing. It was given to them, and as God's word says, thus they plundered the Egyptians. You see, the gold was a gift, a gift from God, a gift gift to the Israelites by God on the eve of their deliverance. So symbolically, this gift of gold was their engagement ring, and now after chapter 24, their gold wedding band. Israel has removed her wedding band. She has given herself to another. She has committed adultery. She has broken covenant. And then the theme of infidelity is continued in verses 21 to 25. Aaron is confronted and rebuked by Moses, verse 21, for leading the people into such great sin. Aaron Denies his guilt. He shifts the blame to the people. There's even that that humorous moment. Out came this calf. But what a sad moment, pointing to the condition of his heart. And then verse 25 really gives us insight into exactly what is happening in the camp. We read that the people have broken loose, that they are running wild, that they are out of control. And in Hebrew, this phrase, broken loose... Uh, Very much related to a similar phrase back in verse 6. And if you look at verse 6, it it has the phrase, they rose up to play. Uh, The people brought offerings, sat down to eat and drink, and rose up to play. Well, the reference here is sex play. They rose up to mockery, crude entertainment, indulgence in illicit sex. You see, this is an adulterous affair. And it's not taking place behind closed doors, but in the very face of God. Now, I grew up in Georgia, and I'm sure like many of you, the home states have some interesting old laws that are in the books. And one of those interesting laws that I learned growing up uh, for Georgia is that if a married man is to come home, and there is another man with his wife He can shoot that man dead, legally. Adultery is a big deal. Relational unfaithfulness, covenant brokenness, that's what's going on here in Exodus 32. It's it's not simply the story of a a small mistake, the story of a, a golden calf, but more the story of Israel's infidelity in the face of God's holiness. And that's a combination that should end in death for the entirety of Israel. And it's not only the story about Israel's infidelity, but also the story of our own infidelity. This text is about spiritual adultery. And we're not the faithful spouse. We're the unfaithful one. In fact, later in Scripture, in the New Testament, James accuses us so pointedly, so accurately, you adulterous people. James writing the church of Jesus Christ, saying, you adulterous people. In this story, it's not so much that we see what we're not to do, though that does take place, but more so we see who we are. Our hearts are revealed. And so how are we unfaithful to God? How do we commit adultery against Him? Well, if you were here last week for our adult ed class, one of the things that we considered is that to be a Christian is to be joined to Christ. In fact, we talked about it in terms of being married to Christ, a metaphor that that Scripture uses to describe that union with Jesus and we also talked about last week how we, we all struggle with spiritual purity. So, where are you most tempted to commit spiritual adultery? In other words, what things function as false lovers? What things make you feel attractive, valued, important? What things do you grasp for So that you can have a sense of significance, a sense of meaning, like I really matter. Where do you see Christ replacements in your life? Those things that you are looking to 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 fill you, those things that you put above Jesus to define you, to give you hope, to give you security. What are you trusting in above, before Jesus for example, maybe it's your career, career advancement. Maybe it's recognition, success, the approval of others. Or maybe for you it's comfort and ease, or your health. Or maybe it's seeking pleasure. Could be that you hold on to a respected family, trophy, kids. Or even spiritual maturity as a Christ replacement. Or so often for us in the PCA, theological knowledge, doctrinal accuracy. Now, not that these are bad things. Many good things, but have they become ultimate things for us above Jesus? As another pastor uh, put it, When we only want a little religion, we only want a little Jesus from time to time to to help us out when we really need it, then we're treating faith like a one-night stand with God, simply wanting a boost. But there's no abiding commitment, and so we quickly turn to other lovers. And when we do that, those of us in Christ have removed our wedding band, we've given ourselves to another, we have committed adultery. We have broken covenant. Do you feel the weight? The weight of our sin? Well, it gets weightier. Let's move on to holiness, from our infidelity to God's holiness. We'll be in verses 7 to 10, 15 to 20, 26 to 29. Now, the, the word holy, is, it's a complex word. But simply put, it means set apart, distinct, that which is, which is other. And because of this othernet, it, otherness, it often inspires a fear and trembling awe. You know, there's a, a new movie that came out this weekend. I think it will be one of those blockbuster hits. But it, it reminded me of something distinct, something other, something holy, that totally freaks out my kids. So each Christmas, they love to watch a Charlie Brown Christmas. You've seen a Charlie Brown Christmas? Okay, that's not the thing that freaks them out, thank goodness. But the the DVD version that we have, whoever set it up, whoever put the previews on this DVD, clearly they do not have young children. Because the first thing that comes up, I mean, I put the DVD on and my kids cringe and cover their eyes or, or they scream and run out of the room. Because as soon as I hit play, the first thing that, that comes up is this preview with a huge, frightening, green face filling the whole screen with flames and then a booming voice. I am Oz, the great and powerful. Who are you? My kids are terrified by that holiness. Now, of course, in the movie, we find out that the great and powerful Oz turns out to be a fake. But there's one whose holiness is far greater, far more powerful than anything Hollywood could ever conjure up. Because remember, God is the perfection of everything, God is beauty, God is the fullness of glory perfect and pure faithful and true awesome distinct from all creation plain and simple god is holy and anything unholy is at odds with that which is holy so verses 7 to 10 we see god's anger burns against the infidelity of israel whom he is married his righteous and, righteous and just wrath points to their destruction. It's a threat of divorce. And then verses 15 to 20, Moses finally gets it. Now remember, they're up at the top of the mountain. So God, who sees all, can see what's happening at the base of the camp. But Moses is up there. He can't see. He's, he's a limited human being. He can't see what's happening down at the base of the mountain. But finally, in these verses, Moses goes back down. And gets to see firsthand the adulterous affair that's unfolding in the camp. And he's appalled. He's appalled at the blatant disregard, the disrespect, the dishonor that Israel is bringing on her God. On her loving husband. And he throws down the tablets. He breaks the stone tablets engraved with covenant vows. It would be like taking the marriage certificate of a couple, husband and wife, tearing it in half, throwing it to the ground. Moses' anger now burns against the ungodliness of the people. And this breaking of the tablets is expressing the reality of the situation, broken covenant. And then verses 26 to 29, God's holiness His honor, His glory, His dignity. God's holiness is defended. The Levites put to death 3,000 fellow Israelites for their disloyalty. Okay, now, does that part of the story kind of sit a little uneasy with you? You read through and you get to this part and you go, Whoa, isn't that a little harsh? Can't we have some forgiveness? You know, what I think is going on is it points to the, the, the reason this bothers us so much is, is deep down, we think we're really not that bad. We think that people really aren't, aren't that bad. It, it wouldn't deserve that, would it? And it also points to the fact we don't take God's holiness seriously enough. Because God's holiness cannot simply overlook sin. In fact, God's holiness demands fidelity, and yet we are grievously unfaithful. As it says in Ephesians, apart from grace, we are dead in our transgressions and sin. Dead, and we are objects of wrath. So now, do you feel it's even weightier, the weight of our sin in the face of God's holiness? But there's a turn, the turn of the gospel. And that leads to our final section. Let's take a look at grace from infidelity to holiness to grace, because it's in here. Verses 11 to 14 and 30 to 35. Because without grace we have no hope, none, none at all. But by grace, God provides a way for the unholy to become holy, to be made holy, so that we could enter into the presence of God. Uh, Verses 11 to 14, here we find one of the most amazing prayers in Scripture. Moses intercedes on behalf of sinful people, God's people, and he appeals on the basis of God's character and covenant faithfulness. Now, at it, it first read, it, it might seem like Moses is being slick with God, trying to be manipulative, but that's not what is going on at all. Rather, Moses is carrying out God's loving purpose for Israel. God is giving Moses the opportunity to feel the weight, to feel the weight of a people he loves, to feel the weight to truly understand the covenant, its demands and God's provision these people that he so deeply loves. God has voiced the reality of, of the people's covenant breaking, the scandal of it. And he has done something in this moment. He has exposed their need. Their need for a mediator. Their need for someone to come in between. And here, by grace, God allows Moses to step in that role, albeit temporarily. Temporarily. And that role of mediator is continued as we round out this passage, verses 30 to 35. Let me reread that through verse 32 again. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out. Blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses confesses the people's sin. He pleads for their forgiveness and He even, even offers to die on their behalf. In verse 33, God says, no, no. You see, Moses couldn't make atonement for their sin. Ultimately, he couldn't bring about lasting reconciliation between a holy God and sinful people. He couldn't bridge the gap of infidelity separating them. Because Moses was a sinner. Like you, like me. And only someone sinless can bring about reconciliation for sinners. Only the death of someone perfect can cleanse those steeped in sin. God's holiness demands fidelity, infidelity deserves the sword. Just as 3,000 Israelites were slain by the sword on that day of judgment, so too each of us deserve to be struck down for our unfaithfulness to God. But while we are unfaithful to God, while we are unfaithful, God is faithful. God is faithful and He provides all that we need. He provides for us. In Jesus. Jesus, who lived the perfect life that we can't live. Jesus, who took the sword for us, who was pierced by the sword so that we wouldn't have to be. He was pierced for our transgressions, and by his wounds, we are healed. Jesus, the perfect and the final sin offering. Slain on the cross for us. And this all because of a loving husband. O oh, love that will not let me go. O oh, love that will come after me no matter what. It's the aggressiveness of grace. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. To be a sin offering for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God so that in Him, we might be reconciled to God, our loving husband. God's holiness demands fidelity, and He provides a way for those demands to be met. Now, in doing so, He doesn't lower His standards. He doesn't compromise His holiness so that we can be reconciled to Him. No, He didn't do that. Rather, God raises us up. We sang about it earlier. God raises us up by grace into the fidelity that he demands. God raises us up into the fidelity of Jesus. You see, not only does God's holiness demand fidelity, but also God's grace provides it. God's grace provides all that we need. That's the gospel plain and simple. The demand for perfection, God's provision for it, and all that we need in Jesus. And the gospel is, it's not new news, but it's always good news. And you know, one of the beautiful things about this story is that it's not primarily about us and our sin, but about God and His glory. His love, His mercy, His grace. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, that He might get us, that He might reclaim His bride. And what an infusion of joy that is into a heart that believes. As seen throughout the Old Testament, Today, in Exodus 32, the gospel calls us to look to the God who provides, who has provided it all. And it calls us to an abiding dependence on Jesus. The gospel calls us to turn from our sin, to trust in him. It's a life of daily repentance and faith. Repentance and faith is we learn to live more and more within the reality of Christ's fidelity. And that's a life of joy. That's the good news. That's the good news of grace. Thanks be to God.